Good evening, everyone. Can we all hear me? By that, I mean, are you all listening to me? Welcome to Housing Works Bookstore. My name's Rosie. I'm the director of public programs here. Um, and I was part of the group who conceived of the series of which this event is the fourth and final installment, um, a series around the relationship between mass incarceration and writing and literature, um, exploring from many directions how the two intersect. And um, tonight we will hear about the, the efforts that are being done both from um, a kind of big five corporate level down to a very grassroots level um, in terms of making publishing and writing more accessible for folks who um, have experienced mass incarceration in some shape or form. Um, but before we get started, I'm just going to talk a tiny bit about Housing Works and the bookstore and how the two are related. So can you just raise your hand if this is the first time you've been to Housing Works bookstore? Cool. So we have a couple new people. Um, the bookstore sells books, clearly, but um, the interesting thing about all the books in here is that they've been donated to us, um, both by individuals and by companies. Um, we get things like, you know, collections from dead relatives, um, people who are cleaning out their garages and, you know, maybe they watched Marie Kondo and they're like, 30 books is enough. <laughs> um, I don't need these other 400. That wasn't my experience. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't part with them, but um, it was interesting after that program came out that we got a lot of donations, so <laughs> clearly spoke to lots of people. Um, so yeah, uh, we raise money to support Housing Works, which is an organization that works with folks affected by homelessness and HIV AIDS in New York. We've been doing that since the late 80s. Originally, we were part of ACT UP New York, which is a coalition of um, organizers and activists responding to the AIDS crisis. And since then, we've grown into an 800-person organization offering housing and healthcare, grief counseling, mental healthcare, um, job training. We have a reentry program for folks who are coming back into their communities after incarceration. Um, we have a SMART program where we work with folks who are currently incarcerated and many, many other things. We have a legal department to help people who have experienced um, HIV criminalization or um, oppression due to their HIV status. Uh, we also bust our employees out of jail when they've been arrested for civil disobedience, which happens a lot. Um, and our president, Charles King, is, is oftentimes being arrested up in Albany, um, in DC, on civil actions against, you know, basically the oppression due to poverty, um, which is affecting more and more people. Although, um, the new rates of HIV infection in New York have plummeted in recent years. I think last year the, the new rate of um, infections was 5,000. So thanks to us and other organizations in New York, um, we're actually winning, so that's cool. Um, and you can support us in all the work that we do by buying books and you know spending money in the cafe. You can volunteer with us. It's really, really fun and a nice way to become part of our community. We have 14 thrift stores across the city and in Queens and Brooklyn as well, um, where we have you know homewares and clothes and bric-a-brac, uh, which is a like a weird word, but just means you know the random stuff that you do need. Um, and you can donate to those too if you're moving or if you're just clearing out. So. Yeah, um, follow us on social media and you can keep up with all of our events. We have um, a big social justice series starting in a couple weeks. The first event of that is a conversation with um, folks from various um, legal organizations talking about uh, 
progressive prosecutors, progressive DAs, and um, what that actually means in practice. And when folks are elected on progressive platforms, how we can, as a community, hold them accountable to those. Because uh, I don't know if you've been following, but a lot of progressive prosecutors end up not being very progressive. So, um, you know, they have a lot of power and they're a really big part of criminal justice reform or transformation um, and do have the power if they are willing to use it to, you know, make big steps towards ending mass incarceration. So come along to that. And yeah, thank you for coming this evening. So um, the event is split into three conversations. And the first one is going to be uh, moderated by Mitch S. Jackson, who is an amazing writer and activist and advocate. Um, he's the author of Survival Math, which just came out, and The Residue Years, which um, won many awards and was critically acclaimed. And Mitch is going to be talking to Kathy Belden from Scribner, who's also his editor, um, and has worked with other incarcerated writers or formerly incarcerated writers, and Tim O'Connell um, from Knopf, who is the editor of uh, Nico Walker's book, Cherry. So please join me in welcoming these three fantastic humans to the stage. Big round of applause. Hi, everybody. Uh, thank you all for coming. I want to add to my illustrious resume, Penn Prison Writing Fellow, <laughs> Writing for Justice Fellow, I'm sorry. Uh, and shout to Kate and Robbie for uh, inviting me here. Uh, it's great to be with my editor. Um, great to meet you Likewise. as well. Um, so I have uh, some, some set questions uh, to ask. Uh, and we will start with um, if you all could um, explain the capacity you have worked um, professionally and currently with incarcerated writers. Um, well, I remember the year I decided I wanted to publish books into the about prison or prison writing. It was 1995, and it took until I think 2016. And I uh, started working with um, a guy named Curtis Dawkins. Uh, he's uh, currently incarcerated in Michigan uh, for felony murder. Um, life sentence, no option for parole. Um, I work with three other writers who are formerly incarcerated. Um, and uh, hopefully, uh, we'll continue to work with Kurt, so. Um, and I just really, I uh, was introduced to Nico Walker about two years ago or so, so he's the, really the only person I work with who's currently incarcerated. And he um, was an Iraq war vet, and uh, after he came home under sort of the auspices of, of severe PSTD, he started uh, robbing banks. He said mm -hmm. it was the one way uh, that helped him deal with it, aside from heroin. And so he got an 11-year sentence, and he has about a year and a half left. Uh. Um, so maybe I can explain like the, I guess the traditional way that someone acquires a book is uh, really the writer finds some kind of advocate that introduces them to an agent, right? And then an agent and the writer will go through a kind of process of revision usually. Um, and then at some point when they think it's ready, they will submit to a list of editors who they have a relationship with or who they think 
um, this book fits their taste, right? So that's like the traditional, and well, and then usually you all just reject most everything, <laughs> you know, uh, and then I don't know, somehow, you know, the yeah. things line up and, and we get a book into the world. But uh, I imagine that that process is different um, from the, the process of acquiring a book from someone who is incarcerated. Uh, so maybe you all can talk about that. Um, with, with Nico, at least for me, he came to me through um, a, a record executive. He was the head of Fat Possum Records. Um, and so that was pretty unique. There was no auction. There was no agent. Uh, I worked directly with the author and with Matthew. And essentially, there was a piece in BuzzFeed about Nico. And he was kind of, you know, he was a pretty decorated guy. He was a medic. And uh, he went out on double the amount of missions that he could, and he really earned a lot of goodwill. And so there was this kind of interesting situation around him as like, what happens to someone who, you know, basically leaves high school and goes to war and sees horrific things and then comes home and is sort of immediately abandoned by the system? And uh, there was a piece about him on BuzzFeed News, and Matthew Johnson from from Fat Possum read this and kind of something kind of, I think he kind of liked the way that Nico answered questions about himself and sort of his interests. And he struck up a correspondence with him. And while this was happening, a couple Hollywood people were circling around Nico to try to buy his life rights. And uh, Matthew said, don't do a thing, can you write a novel? And Nico was kind of like, well, you know, I can give it a shot. And uh, you know, he found a typewriter. Um, and started hammering away on what would eventually become Cherry. Um, and Matthew had said to him, like, if you write a novel and it works out, you know, I'll get you a million dollar movie deal. And then um, the Russo brothers recently acquired it, and these guys are the guys who produced the Avenger movies um, in a major auction. And so he, you know, did everything he said he was going to do. Wow. It's a, lot of, it's a lot of serendipity, but. Yeah. <laughs> so Kurt's a little unusual in that he went into prison with an MFA degree. And okay. so I don't know how many. MFA holders there are in the American prison system. Um, and he realized, I guess after a month in county, that he needed to write in order to keep himself alive. And he realized when he came up with the first sentence of that. Sure. Um, he realized when he wrote the first sentence of the story called County that he, he would live because you don't start a story that you don't want to finish. Um, he came to me through a literary agent, but uh, had been reviewing books for a literary journal. And the man who ran that journal helped him get a literary agent. Um, so he had an advocate through uh, that fellow. So, yeah. Um, I'm really interested in hearing about the process. Uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about your kind of I don't know if it's normal, if there is such, such a thing as a normal process, but like when you get a book, at what point, I mean, when you get a project, like do you start from idea and then move into like seeing chapters of a manuscript? Uh, and then how does that process compare to how, you know, Kurt and then, uh, what is it? Nico? Nico, yeah, Nico. Every book is different. Okay. You know, and, and each book has its own life and that begins from the first letter on the page and than the relationship with the editor or prior to that. But you know, I think as editors, our main job is to put any author or any person in a creative situation in a position to be them best selves. So basically, my first step is, what do you want to do? And then let's make it into that. OK. Um, is there, like, I'm trying to get a sense of how much drafting 
are you doing? How much back and forth are you going? It also varies. I mean, with Nico, we did a fair bit. Um, and it's all the more interesting because he was writing on a typewriter. And then he was really happy the day that he got a typewriter that had a memory card on it. Right. Wow. So he didn't have to retype the whole thing. Like each wow. process is, is unique, but this one was particularly unique because he would type it out. It would be mailed to me. It would be keyed in. I would edit. It would be printed out. We'd send it back to the prison. They'd check it to see if it had been dipped in acid. Right. They'd give it to Nico. He'd type it out. He'd send it back. So we did a lot of work. Yeah. And it just got better and better. And every book has its own life. Was there a moment when what he wrote or one of your revisions was um, against code? code? Code in terms of? Code of like what can come inside. Like there, you know, you can't write about certain topics. I don't um, know if that ever came up. Mm, uh, we pushed the boundaries. I don't, I don't <laughs> think so. I think, you know, I think, he, I think any person at risk who's in a position where there is a power structure it puts themselves literally at risk that if, say, some guard read something who was screening it and was like, right. what the fuck is this? Yeah. So was, Nico seems to be doing okay, so I'm, I'm assuming that he you know, was pretty savvy and he handled that, but no, no subject was off uh, limits. You know, I'd have greater worry about the email system, which okay. is clearly monitored, okay. um, but even then, we've just talked honestly and openly. Did you also work with, with Core Links by any chance? What was the, w did you have an email contact? Uh, JPay, yeah, that's the <laughs> system for Michigan. Yeah, okay. so we emailed, and he can call me. Right. I can't call him. Same. Um, right. And it's just slightly logistically complicated. We would divide the manuscript into pieces <coughs> when we sent it ah. back and forth. And Perfect. he has a sister, and he has a very supportive family. And he has a sister. He has a typewriter with memory that his parents sent him, uh, maybe ten or fifteen years ago. And now they're they're no longer allowed. So is wow. when the typewriter dies, he, I don't know what will happen then, but he sends stuff out to his sister. She puts it in the computer. Ah, right. And then it comes, comes to me. So. Okay. Um, the, the next question is about uh, marketing. You know, I, I hear authors outside um, of the walls talking about their social media accounts <laughs> and how many friends they have and retweets, and it doesn't seem like that's uh, available to um, incarcerated writers. And so I wonder how much does that figure into kind of your process about what to buy and then also like what kind of marketing plan um, does a publisher come up with for a writer who's incarcerated? I mean, both of these books are probably mostly review driven anyway. And uh, Don DeLillo doesn't tweet. <laughs> but, um, it's, there's a, I'd say 30% of the writers I work with aren't active on social media. So, and the thing that sells books is still old media. So we still have those same opportunities, it, in the, at least in the literary realm. Um, so yeah, it, it works both ways. I mean, it, it's quite a hook. You know, and I'd say it this way, but when, when a manuscript's being published by a major house that's coming from a place of incarceration, people are going to say, really? And they're going to read it. And then at the end of the day, I, I, you know, I agree with Kathy that it's like it's what's on the page. And so much of book sales, on, on top of social media and other such things, are driven by word of mouth. And, you know, you got to read this, right? you got to read this. And that still exists when, when the, the thing itself is, is alive. Well, it was interesting with Kurt. The, on the first day of publication, he, there was an article about him on the front of the New York Times uh, newspaper. And... It questioned the morality 
of our publishing him because he had murdered someone. Um, and I, I, I hadn't expected that. Uh, I guess I was naive. And um, I think it had an impact on anyone who was questioning whether to review or not. Um, it may have swung them toward not reviewing, although my memory of it was that that shut everything down. But then I was looking today, and he, he, he got a, you know, a healthy number of reviews and a few award nods. I mean, it hit my radar as a publication independently of knowing of it. So when I was acquiring this, I was actually thinking of the Gray Bar Hotel as something I was telling people, you know, the, the, the how you acquire is, is you got to basically keep walking up a ladder and people getting approval to the top. And one of the comps I would bring up was like, hey, listen, look what, look what happened with this book. It got a ton of attention. Um, so it helped me. So thank you for that. <laughs> um. That is kind of leads into the, the other question, but the uh, kind of maybe you can speak a little more to the reception that the book had. I mean, uh, Tim, you mentioned that uh, like someone would know that he had been in prison and they were like, oh, I'm going to read that. Um, did you find that that was like often the case that that his readership hinged on him being incarcerated or was it? It hinged on the page. I mean, the fact is that, you know, when I first started reading Nico and I only saw sort of snippets at first, I was blown away and I was like, people are gonna love this, right? Mm -hmm. So it always comes back to that, but there is this, and he, and he had this, you know, really compelling story of somebody who really saw some horrific shit mm -hmm. and then didn't know how to deal with it and was abandoned by the system, which then imprisons him, right? So mm -hmm. it's, it's a fascinating thing to think about a kid who was, you know, he's 18, 19, he's, already, he's living under his parents' roof, he goes straight into the military where he's told what to do. He comes back, he doesn't really, he gets his first taste of freedom, he gets, you know, starts fucked, fucked up with drugs, mm -hmm. and is immediately put back in another place where he's told what to do, right? right? So it, to, to see the intellect and the, like, the natural grace that he has on the page come despite all of that, that's really the story, right? It's not like, hey, this guy's in prison, he wrote a book. It's right. like, he's a fucking incredible writer, mm -hmm. and he's doing it in a position that is, is far more difficult. Right, and he's doing it to almost stay alive, right? So it's it's um, and with that pitch, you know, then you get people interested. Okay, I do think the crime can make a difference in how people uh, their willingness, at least in my uh, the fact that Kurt had committed a, m a murder yeah. was significant. I he was the Studio Three Hundred and Sixty was going to do a program about him that never ended up coming to fruition, but they I was interviewed by them, and they the guy said, well, I. Didn't you have any um, uh, moral quandaries yourself? And I said, no, he's allowed to be as human as he can be within the circumstances that society has decided are his punishment. And uh, I think fewer people thought that was the case than I would have anticipated. Yeah, it's, it's um, I mean, that's the fascinating question that borders on the, the sort of nature of like second chances and redeemability and, and who has access to the intellectual life, right? And, you know, I think certainly, no matter what, you cast any book out into the world, certain people are gonna accept it and certain people are not. And that happens with every single thing. And this is a, you know, a much larger factor to play into it. Um, you know, Nico, he, you know, he, he never was violent really and, he, and he, he paid everything back. So he had, it was, it was certainly an easier position, I think than with someone who has, has taken a life. But, you know, the book and the art should, I think, stand too, right? Yeah. 
um, I think I, I'm always trying to like, okay, so how can we preface this like so we can see if there is a difference in these two? But like, the kind of uh, what can mainstream publishers? I don't even know if everyone in here knows what the damn Big Five is. I think I should have said that <laughs> in the beginning. Y'all know what the Big Five is? It's the people who run the publishing industry. It's five companies. I don't even know if I know them all, but there's Simon and Schuster. Uh, shit, one of them got together. It was a Random House Penguin. Okay, they should have never been together. Uh, what's the other one? McMillan. There's three. Hachette. That's Little Brown, right? Yeah. Uh huh. And I'm missing one. Or is it four now? Because Penguin Random House got who? Harper Collins. That's it. Okay. So, uh, I, and how much of the publishing industry are they? Do we know that? Uh, you know, we don't know exact percentages, mm -hmm. but the great thing, you have a big five, you know, and they exist, and, it, and it, there's a continual march toward conglomeration and publishing, yeah. um, and how money is thrown around and spent, um, but there's also an incredibly dynamic and lively independent publishing scene that keeps those big five, at least I'm convinced, alive, yeah. right? Because those are your readers, and those those are the people that are really gritting it out to publish books, mm -hmm. um, and it's extremely, extremely important. And so, you know, coming from a place like Vintage, which used to be a, is a paperback house, which used to we used to kind of cast our eye over the whole industry, um, you learn pretty quickly. You know, there's probably a, there's probably 50 presses out in Brooklyn. You know, and you know maybe they're getting a book or two out, but you know it's a, it's obviously without a doubt, Big Five dominate it, but, but I think there is, there is a, a heartbeat and a life pulse to this other thing that's important. Yeah. Um, so what do you think is the particular role for the Big Five in publishing writers who are incarcerated? Is there a kind of duty beyond what they would have to kind of provide for a writer who wasn't, or is it the same? Yeah. I I saw that question ahead of time, and I. Um, <laughs> That's why I'm like. You got a chance to think about this, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know the way things come to us. I mean, we would need an intermediary because I don't read anything that doesn't come from a literary agent. Mm -hmm. Or if you told me your friend had something, I'd read it. <laughs> but um, so if Penn has people through their prison writing program, mm. they if I don't know how you try to hook people up with, or you you don't right. Yeah. Right, but mm -hmm. but I don't know if you get it into the hands of agents, right? So without right, exactly without somebody helping us get to the material, yeah, I think it would it's a you know it's like everyone else who wants to be published. It's tricky. I I, I coming from vintage again because we we were we were a reprint house, which originally when people didn't want to touch a paperback, you know, it was like hardcover was this prestigious thing. Vintage would buy it. You know, and this is how Knopf ended up publishing people like Cormac McCarthy and others. We kind of brought these people in, in a, within a different format. I constantly look, um, you know, and, and this was something that is, was different, but I think one thing big five publishers can do is look, you know, and, and understand that there are gatekeepers and gateways and they're not always right. And we have to be aware of that even within a big infrastructure. That's by far the, la the last thing that people should do is say, like, well, I'm in a giant tower. Everyone should come to me. Right? You can't, you can't uh, sustain. Okay. Here's my last question. Um, I'm assuming that both of you would publish another formerly incarcerated or incarcerated writer. Is that safe? Okay. I don't want to assume for you, but I am assuming. <laughs> um, the other thing is, though, 
I, I also feel like every book is a lesson. Um, and what are the lessons that you learned from publishing these two particular books that you would carry forth in your relationship with another incarcerated or formerly incarcerated writer? Uh, the biggest for me is time, you know, because of those extra steps, because people are seeing if your pages have been dipped in acid or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, you got a buffer in time. And But one of the things I said to Nico at the very start and was very important to me is that you will be treated like any other offer I, I, I publish. So you're going to see your cover, you're going to see your first pass. I'm never going to make the excuse, well, you're in jail, I couldn't get it to you. So um, we were building to get the book to the Frankfurt Book Fair and things got really tight. And, you know, there was a, I probably pulled a couple hairs out during that time that had I budgeted in a little more time, uh, I may not have done. So I think to me, that's the most important thing because while we're sitting here worrying and like, oh, I'll go grab a coffee, they're sitting in a prison cell worrying. And I can, I would not want to be in that position wondering if like, is my cover going to get done where you have X amount of space to move around in? So I'd, for them, like think, I, it's always like th try to find the maximum amount of empathy for the situation they're in, which I'm sure any editor would do. I guess working with, part of our jobs is managing author disappointment, <laughs> and a big part of our jobs. And um, so because of Kurt's circumstances, uh, you know, he maybe felt things more acutely, or I'm reading his new novel right now, and I had something happen in my personal life, so it's taking me longer than it should. But he uh, sort of, because he's, the most acute compassion is needed for him, it's just that's a valuable lesson in um, you know feeling compassion for all the writers who are disappointed. <laughs> yes, but me not, included. Yes, not, me included. not anyone sitting <laughs> in proximity to me now. Thank you. Thank you both for this. Thank you Thank all you for guys. coming. All right, another round of applause, please, for Mitch, Kathy, and Tim. So next up, uh, we have um, poet and editor Randall Horton. We have Daniel Gross, who's the prison writing editor at the Asian American Writers Workshop, who just unionized. I was very excited to see. Congrats. And Anthony Williams, who is the founder and executive director of Prisoners Potential Publishing Plus. I love alliteration, so I love that so much. Um, which is a nonprofit, a 501c3 nonprofit, which was founded in order to get incarcerated writers work out into the world and also to provide some support for their families. So please welcome to the stage our next round of speakers, Randall, Anthony, and Daniel. Hi everybody, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I'm Daniel Gross. I am an editor at the Asian American Writers Workshop, uh, where I oversee a series called A World Without Cages. Um, we publish a lot of incarcerated writers, and I also uh, write journalism about the prison system. Um, I'm going to allow both of you to introduce yourselves briefly, but I, I just want to say thank you for being here um, and mention the, the very brief highlights. Uh, Anthony Williams, of course, is a formerly incarcerated entrepreneur who has created an online platform for publishing incarcerated writers. Um, and Randall Horton, a poet, an editor, and a professor, um, 
and we'll be talking in part about uh, Willow Books and their, uh, their efforts to increase representation of incarcerated writers. So maybe just a quick uh, introduction from each of you. Um, okay, how, hello everybody, how you doing? All right, good, 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 good. Uh, my name is Randall Horton, originally from Birmingham, Alabama. Um, I was incarcerated for a little while uh, in the state of Maryland. Um, associate professor of English, uh, University of New Haven. Uh, write poetry, nonfiction. Happened to be one of the editors at Willow Books. Um, with a band. I don't know. <laughs> I do a few things, man. Anyway, we'll have fun. All right. Good evening. My name is Anthony Williams. I just recently got out of prison. I've been out 364 days today. And I made so many promises in prison that I had to fulfill them by starting a 501c3, which is Prisoners Potential Publishing Plus. We actually do it all. I mean, this is some of the artwork right here from inmates. I published both of these books right here in prison, but we'll get into that a little later. <laughs> and I'm happy to be here. Thanks to Penn and my friend Robbie, because he is the first one at Penn I met through letters. I'll get into that a little later also. But anyway, I'm just happy to be here. Thank you all for coming out also. And thank you to Housing Works for hosting. Right. One thing I wanted to do briefly here is um, see if either of you wanted to read something. Yes, sorry. Yes. Um, see if either of you wanted to read something that you've published uh, or written to kind of bring these voices into the room. Uh, and I have a little piece that I, I brought in from our writers. Um, Anthony, do you want to start us off? Yeah, I can do that. Sure. All right. This book is titled Clerical Mistake. It was written by me. And I'm going to read the back. It says, this story will compel you to view everything and everyone from a different perspective. In September 2002, Jawan Jackson was arrested and charged with trafficking cocaine by possession and transportation. Jack Taylor, an informant, worked with the police on a sting operation. A weekend of tales invented by this desperate informant caused Jawan to receive a 36-year 36 years for the crime he didn't commit. Some extremely astute legal minds tried to cover up numerous violations before, during, and after trial, which came back to haunt them in a civil suit 15 years later. Jawan accidentally discovered the meaning of the legal term clerical mistake after talking to a federal judge who stumbled upon his case. The head Superior Court, court clerk Mary Lewis, fired Susan Porter after she purposely disregarded her clerical responsibilities. It is a compelling tale of lust, greed, selfishness, betrayal, loss, reunion, re reconciliation, and love. Thanks, Anthony. Go ahead, Randall. Yeah, I'm going to read a piece from... Um, um, uh, woman Carol House, um, she's in Minnesota. Um, part of what uh, we're doing at um, Willow Books, which uh, happened to be uh, one of the editors, um, 
we're trying to um, bring into existence or highlight um, voices from the inside from women. I think that's a very often overlooked perspective, um, and you just don't see those those voices when we come into spaces like these, right? There's always some of the same familiar faces, and sometimes me and my friends ask the questions like, where are the silent ones, right? So um, Carol has a, a, a book that's coming out with us um, in the fall. This is um, Pisces. The bones of my father no longer heal. The bones of my skeleton brave their own vision quest. I have no war stories, no drunken survival methods, only empty canvas repeating dreams of his disappearance. This is what I see. This is what I know. He is what I remember. He is what I do not remember. Thank you, Randall. And the piece I brought in is uh, something we actually published today um, at aaww.org if anyone's looking to read more. Um, it's from a writer named Fong Lee, who I'd, I'd never spoken to before. Um, and he sent in this piece. Um, it's the form that it takes is a conversation between his younger self and his present day self. I'm just going to read a couple paragraphs. Dear Fong, at 31 years old, I picked to write to you especially because 31 is the reverse of 13. I sincerely hope that you reply because it would be disheartening if you do not. Fold this kite into a paper plane and send it by air, or fold it into a boat and send it by sea and hope it will reach me before I fall too deep in the madness of the street. The 1998 summer sun is cooking everything in its path. I have just lost my boyhood. I'm officially a man. Middle school is a struggle. It is so fucking boring. And quite frankly, I am tired of waking up in the morning every day to nothing. There is nothing to learn at school besides fighting and hanging out with girls in abandoned houses until school is over. I cannot wait until I am 18, when I can get away and explore the world. I want to become a model or an artist. Could that be possible? And Fong, who's 31, writes back, Dear Fong at 13, I hate to be blunt, but it is true. Fate will not be kind. Life goes by quicker than the time you take to blink. Do stop and take a cold, hard look at your life. I know that middle school is difficult, but you must endure it because high school is fast approaching. That is your best shot at being a model, like you've always dreamed, or an artist. And that is where you will meet Jenny V. She'll become your high school sweetheart. One blink is equivalent to one year. Do not blink. So one reason I wanted to bring these voices into the room is, is to open up the question of what are the material conditions in which this type of writing is created? So the two of you as writers, like how did you um, become writers and in what conditions were you actually creating the work? Well, for me, I mean, I didn't start writing until um, I was incarcerated. I didn't start writing until I was incarcerated. Um, I think um, if you'd have told me when I was in high school I was going to be a poet and a, a, a writer, a nonfiction writer, whatever, I would have told you you were crazy. Um, but 
funny thing happened when I was incarcerated. Uh, I was in this program in the state of Maryland, uh, Montgomery County, Silver Springs. No, excuse me, Rockville. Um, I was facing a bunch of time, and I ended up getting into this program. Um, and one of the things in the program was this was a group. And so one of the things we had to do every night was to go in our cell and write, answer these questions about some of the things that we had done to others and we had done to ourselves and you know, all of these sort of things that, for me, I was not never able to sort of articulate um, in terms of the way I moved in the world, but prior to, to being, finding myself in that position, you know, I came from that long lineage of, you know, men who thought they had to hold, hold it close to the vest and all that kind of thing, right? So for me, when I began to discover the idea of language, it became something that was transformative and something that I really, you know, gravitated toward. Um, so for me, I didn't have an idea, I didn't know what a writer was, to be honest with you, I didn't know <laughs> if that was even possible, but I did know one thing that sort of writing was the thing that made me feel good about myself and made me um, sort of be able to dream outside of the bars that was holding me within that condition, right? And you and told I, me that you wrote on a yellow legal pad. Yeah, I wrote on, yeah, and so part of the thing when I got there, I used to wake up every morning, I, was, I would write, um, I had this little short story, right, I was writing on um, this protagonist with this little girl, and you know, I was trying to figure it out, so, some of the things that I had seen um, and been through before, you know, that, you know, come to that state. And, um, and so I would write in the morning and then in the evening I would sort of get out of the little Smith and Corona typewriter. So I would like bang out on the typewriter the story, right? But then funny thing happened too. Um, the girl, for some reason I equated, you know, the girl having to sort of write poetry with being smart or whatever. And so she had to write poetry, man. And, but I didn't know what a poem was. Um, so I had to figure that out, you know. So you had to write a poem on behalf of your character. Yeah, no, for real. <laughs> so, <laughs> so all of these things I'm saying, and so this is how I begun, became into sort of like the idea of writing and what that could sort of be, do and be. And some of these writers um, whose books I would read, I would sort of actually write them, and they would write me back. So I began to have this sort of dialogue. And that sort of kind of sort of gave me a confidence too within myself. So when I when I got out, I'm, I'm, you know, when my sentence was commuted, my sentence was commuted because I was facing a, a rack of time in Maryland, right? And so um, I went back to school with the idea of like trying to be a writer. I didn't know how that was going to make you know make itself manifest itself or whatever, but it did. But I found a workshop. Was getting to the point. So when I, I found a workshop in Washington um, that I was able to be a part of that sort of like geared me and sort of nurtured me in the sort of right way in terms of like writing. How about you, Anthony? Well, when I first felt I had so much time, writing wasn't even an option for me. The only writing I was interested in doing was legal briefs. And once I learned how to, you know, actually write one, I filled up the courtroom with nothing but briefs. And I, I got myself back in court off of one of them and the judges were actually telling me that I should become a writer because that's how good the briefs that I wrote were. <laughs> so, you know, I, I end up contacting Dan Holly. He was uh he worked at one of the newspapers and he sent me a book that he wrote. And when I got the book I read it and it was so good I put myself in his place in the book. And it was really, really amazing. I said, I can do this. So after a few more years went by, I, um, I reached out to my brother, and he told me about an organization that was helping him that thought he could write. 
So I was like, who is this organization? And he told me it was Penn. So when I, when I contacted Penn, they gave me a, a application or something. I filled it out and I wrote a short story. I sent it in and I got a good review from it. And I also got a mentor and an editor, which was amazing because I don't know, I, at that time I thought I was like a, a help magnet because all this help was coming in from different places. But in prison, after I worked through Penn and got an editor, I actually wrote another book, which was better than both of these books. I haven't put it out yet. <laughs> but the title of it is called Gaia Studio, and I wrote it. Uh, it's about a friend of mine that I used to work for right here on Nassau Street. I think it was 132 Nassau Street, and he passed away while I was in prison, so I kind of dedicated the book to him. But. Um, I'm gonna stop there. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you both, what resources did you wish you had in prison? And also, how are your current projects um, helping to offer those resources to currently incarcerated writers? Well, I mean, there wasn't a blueprint, <laughs> I mean, when I was locked up in terms of um, who I was being able to look at or somebody coming in to do a workshop, those kind of things were virtually non-existent. Um, I wish I would have been able to be a part of that because I've been a part on the other end of it, going into a lot of places on the inside um, where I may have been able to sort of partner with, a bunch, with organizations, um, and especially with the juvenile you know, population, right? I, mean, I, I love working with, um, with those young kids sometimes, but anyway, um, being in, you know, wishing I had that, but on the other end, um, that's some of the things that I'm really trying to pay attention to now um, is um, doing that kind of work. Um, but, you know, sort of some of the things is sort of like how do you partner with certain organizations or whatever. Like when we first, we had a group, uh, when I, um, my, I had my first book of poetry came out, we, I did a, this thing with a few other poets. Um, it was called The House That Etheridge Built, right? Um, it's called the symphony, um, and so um, what part of what we did when we was, we used to do these, um, these these college readings or whatever, and part of what they would have we would, they would do is um, they would bring us there. But then part of the deal was they we would have we would, they would have to find places for us to go on the inside and sort of like do workshops, et cetera, et cetera. So we did that for like almost five years, right? So those are those are the kind of things that I think you know we need to look at too in terms of how do we commit ourselves to sort of like you know, doing that work, um, so, yeah. It sounds like you're talking about, you're trying to provide incarcerated writers with the literary community or the, or the training well, I think, yeah, that I mean, you didn't I think, have. Yeah, I, I do, yeah, I, I, you know, and I, I think that's important, you know, there's a situation, like I was trying to explain to you up in um, Mount McGregor, up in Saratoga, um, there was a program run by um, this poet named Kara Bunsen, and, um, you know, the guys that came through that program, and all of them that sort of come out, man, tend to do really, really well, right? And you know, and so I was able to work with them for about four or five years as well. So um, I do think that there's an importance to it, and I wish I would have had that. But you know, for me, I just had to get it myself. You know, um, I think, that, and lose myself in the book and, and try to figure it out. So. so, what took the place of a writing community for you, Anthony? How did you fill that void? Well, I was um, in segregation a lot at first. So once I had established that I wanted to be a writer, I started you know, writing chapters. And then I actually 
would let the people who was in segregation read my chapters to get feedback to see <laughs> if I had any talent. And I always had a lot of stamps, so what I was doing, I was writing different people. Like, I wrote, um, I had a legal, uh, legal magazine where it actually had the addresses of different people, like editors and stuff. So I wrote this lady named Jane Pinkus, Pinkus and she, she wrote me back. So when I got out of the hole, I called her, and she told me that she didn't edit anymore. So I was upset about that. I was like, what am I supposed to do now? You know what I'm saying? So she started asking me questions like, what is your book about, or what's the title? And I told her, Clerical Mistakes. So she, she said, okay, I'll tell you what. Send me a chapter, and if I like it, I'll point you in the right direction. So I asked, I said, can I send any chapter? She said, any chapter. So I said, I'm gonna send you chapter 19. So I sent her chapter 19, she read that. I got a letter back a week later, and she said, send the whole thing. I, I gotta see what's gonna happen. <laughs> and that's, that's basically what my community was about. Uh, so I wanted to talk about paying writers um, and the role that, pay, that payment can play in achieving justice and equity. Um, at the Amer Asian American Writers Workshop, um, we've made a policy of paying incarcerated writers the same as writers on the outside. Um, but this can be a pretty tricky process. And so I'm, I'm interested in, in how do you pay writers? Uh, and, and what do you think uh, some best practices or some lessons are in how to deal with um, paying people who are incarcerated? I mean, well, for us, this is our first project um, in terms of um, doing this. And you know, part of the thing we wanted to uh, create a series of women writers. And so Carol is actually the first in terms of that, um, that we're dealing with a writer that's on the inside. Um, with that said, there's a couple of things I can't necessarily talk about publicly right now because it's just some other kind of money involved and they haven't been announced. So there's a couple of ways that Carol is getting paid sort of even with this work even being put out, right? Um, but then the other, the other part of it is being able to partner with the Minnesota Writing Workshop uh, with Jennifer Bourne Hicks, the work that she's doing. Um, we're gonna be able to sort of put on some readings and do some other things and those tentacles tend, you know, reach outside of those city limits. But that's sort of the, the vision that we have for her work. Um, to be able to um, to do that and put it on display and sort of like create that gym, that that sort of funds or that 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 that, that money for for um, for Carol, excuse me, um, and so and then versus whatever that 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 comes with the standard um, you know the poetry contract, you know what I mean? So um, it's a few ways, but there's a there's another back way that we're able to to funnel some money to, and we've talked about this with Carol. She already, she's, you know, so. But because it hasn't been made public, I, I can't necessarily say, because a few people here might know, so I'm just not going to say anything. So. Yeah, it takes some creativity. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So Anthony, you've, you've come up with a pretty creative way of getting um, payment to writers. Yes. Um, I found that out the hard way at first, because when I first published my book and started selling it, it got around the prison, and I got a letter saying, hey, you can't do that. <laughs> so guess what? I said, okay, if y'all don't want me to make money off the book, I'll just give it away for free. So I put it on Smashwords and a couple other free sites, and I promoted it that way. But I was actually waiting on a case that um, was pending about a guy, I don't remember where he was at, but he filed a lawsuit because the prison had took his material away from him. So 
Once that happened, he won the lawsuit. So they didn't want to pay him the 167000 so they actually kept appealing it. And then once it went to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court said that an inmate can write a story, he just can't make money off of it. And that's when the bell went off in my head. I said, okay, so if I can't make money off of it, then I can donate the book to a nonprofit organization and they can actually donate my portion to someone else. And that's, we adopted that in my organization and that's what happened. We, we take the, uh, the inmates donate the books to us and we take the books and we sell them. We promote them online and then once, once they sell, their families get 50% and the same thing with the artwork. These are draw, drawings by inmate, like I mentioned before. I was really excited about getting them in. We get a lot of, we even do family reform now, so we have, the whole family can write stories and submit artwork and we sell them and they get 50% of it. The last question I wanted to ask um, has to do with how this community of editors and publishers uh, writers who cover prison can do a better job. So I guess what are you seeing? Uh, what are the missed opportunities um, or the ways to improve that, that folks like us, folks like the people in this room um, can work on? I don't know, man. But for me, I think it probably is two things I'm thinking about right now. The first thing is language. Um, I've talked a lot about this and I'm very sort of adamant about this. You know, I'm very cognizant of the ways in which we sort of, like we talk about re-victimizations, we sort of recriminalize with, when we use words like, you know, convict, ex-felon, and all that bullshit. So for me, it's kind of like, you know, how do we sort of like even think about the language in which we even sort of discourse in this whole thing, right? Because I think that's very important because, yeah, it just is, you know, and, and I think we don't think about that a lot of times when we begin to speak in some of this, in this criminal uh, justice jargon and doing all of this stuff, like, what are we doing with that? Because, I mean, you know, for me, it's like, I'm not an ex anything, man, shit, you know, so. Anyway, and the other thing, go ahead. I was just gonna jump in to say that a lot of the time you'll, you'll read a review by a writer who's never written about the prison system, and that's the hook for them, is the fact that the writer is formerly incarcerated, and there's this kind of irony that they're using, like, oh, this ex-con, which is a term they're using really sloppily, right, 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 is right. writing a book, and that's so amazing. Right, but then you know, you're supposed to be in that situation where you sort of change, and you change, you pay your sort of debt. Right. You pay your sort of debt, and then you know you get all of this, and so you know. And so that's one thing. The other thing is so so think about that. But the other thing is too is sort of the way in which um, this sort of for me, and I, and I I I touched on this you know earlier in terms of the lack of women voices in terms of this whole discourse and the way in which even, we even begin to talk about these issues and you know, how do we get more of those voices to the table? You know, what are you doing for that? Because um, that's a real thing too. Um, and you know, how do we get those voices into the same spaces that some of these other voices are able to sort of move and, and negotiate through, right? How does that happen? How do you do that? So I'll leave it, I'll leave it at the two. Thanks. I want to say I think that we can do better by looking at the whole family. So what we did is we started an organization within PPP Plus, which is a family reform, which allows the kids, the 
wives that lost their husbands and vice versa to participate in our therapeutic program. And by them participating, it, it generates money for the whole family so they can actually promote themselves on the outside as well as their loved ones on the inside. I think that's a great place to leave it. Okay. Thank you all so much. All right. Thank Thanks you for being here. Yep. Once again, it's Anthony Williams, Randall Horton, and Daniel Gross. And Thanks make sure y'all pick up a card, a business card, out when y'all leave out. I have this on the front. All right, so our third and final discussion is with my two comrades from the Pan America Prison and Justice Writing Program who, I just don't come up yet. Um, I feel truly blessed to have been able to work with on this project and to build a really amazing friendship with. I'm in awe of the work that they do and their amazing interns and everyone else at Penn as well um, is you know, inspirational for us all. And um, Kate and Robbie are gonna be talking with Eli Hager, who is the editor of Life Inside at The Marshall Project. Um, and if you're not familiar with The Marshall Project, they do incredible reporting on the criminal justice system, exposing a lot of important shit. Uh, and they had a really good article recently on um, something that we're super interested in at Housing Works Health Justice and how a lot of um, Medicare for All programs kind of overlook uh, incarcerated people. So I'd recommend that to start with. Um, please welcome to the stage, uh, Kate, Robbie, and Eli. Hello. How you feeling? I know it's like not a, a conversation where people are like, woo! But we could do a woo. Can we do a woo? <laughs> We're talking about publishing people, okay? My name is Kate Meissner. I'm the Prison and Justice Writing Program Director at PEN America, as Rosie so generously introduced us. And Rosie, thank you so much for really bringing us on to the Works of Justice series and opening up the partnership. This is a really special night for us because obviously, or not so obviously, if you don't know us, uh, this is what we do every day. And it's very emotional for me to listen to all the conversations because five, 10 years ago, uh, this would never have been on the stage and also to hear some of the names of folks, Carol House, Fong Lee, both writers who I met um, when I visited the prisons there in, in um, Minnesota. So very moving just to bring them into the room. Thank you. And thank you to all of our folks who were on stage. Uh, with that said, um, I want to allow my colleague Robbie to tell you a little bit about our prison writing program and what we do on a daily basis, if I can shoot that over to you. Sure, sure. I'm really excited. Thank you for introducing me. Uh, I'm the prison writing coordinator at PEN America. Uh, we have a lot of PEN people in the house. Thank you for stopping by. Um, PEN America is a long-running uh, uh, free speech and advocacy organization, uh, and one of their arms is the prison writing program. And it's basically been around since 1972-ish in the wake of the Attica riots in New York. Um, the writers who are of the member-driven organization said we can do something about this lack of access to writing and basic educational materials. And it's one of the lines we straddled with our program is the educational role, you know, the helperism, and the uplifting and amplifying voices of people who have stories to tell and often in innovative 
amazing ways um, that should be shared with the world. So we have those, that sort of two-pronged arm. Um, one of the ways we traditionally, because uh, both Kate's and I are relatively new to Penn, um, uh, one of the ways traditionally we've helped writers is with this handbook for writers in prison, um, which our predecessors prepared with lots of love and craft. Um, when I was incarcerated, I saw, had copies of this book handed to me mostly with pages ripped out from the favorite ones that guys had used on poetry and uh, other sections that were um, really juicy, which I never got to see until B. <laughs> um, but the, this book is like an, a really invaluable primer on drama, fiction, nonfiction, you know, how to do screenwriting, and everybody want, on the inside wants to be a screenwriter and make Tyler Perry money. Um, but so Penn kind of fits into this slot. We pair, we have an annual contest where we uh, award writers in those genres modest amounts. Uh, we spoke about payment earlier. Um, and we, our top prize is $250. Um, so it's not like, whoa, but it really does mean a lot to a lot of our writers to be compensated for their work um, in a way that's tangible. And $250 in prison, you might as well put like a couple zeros on the end to compare it to the real world. Uh, so we're, we're proud to do that. And every year we get amazing work. We have a panel of um, long-term judges who are on a committee who judge our work, and they're dedicated. Many of them have advocated for writers, in some cases helped get people off of death row, and literally saved lives and changed lives through their interaction with the writer's work. It's, it's sort of hard not to be moved when you see that much of someone's soul bared on the paper. So we're proud to uphold that legacy at Penn. And th not to go on too much longer, but basically the work, um, we've put it together into an anthology, a, a full print anthology for the current year, last year's contest, and we're doing one for this current year. It's available up at the front. Please grab a copy. It's called The Named and the Nameless, based on one of the work. There's art in here from uh, on the cover from Molly Crabapple and on the inside from Kate's and myself. We thought we'd add our two cents to the uh, artistic um, vision of the book. Uh, when the writers win, we pair them with mentors, or if they, the committee decides that their work is really good, we'll pair them with a writing mentor, and we may have some mentors in the room. I don't know, but big shout-outs. Um, they exchange letters with the writers and often play the role of editor, friend, confidant. Um, there's often conflict in the relationships and I encourage that. I think it's great. Let's change minds on both sides. It's kind of like the value of, of the exchange. It's a two-way street. Um, so with that, did I cover all the bases? That was fantastic and I would be remiss not to shout out Thanks. the fellowship that Mitch Jackson's a part of, Woo. Writing for Justice Fellowship. Yes, Mitch, put your glasses back on for that. And uh, we award writer, uh, not award, but we, we select writers uh, out of over 800 applications last year, so this year we'll see. Uh, we awarded 10 writers last year with honorariums to create uh, works of critical uh, conversation around mass incarceration. So that ranges from poetry to nonfiction to journalism, et cetera, et cetera. And two of our uh, writers, our fellows are currently incarcerated which, with much higher honorariums, like $10,000 to the tune of. So it gets a little trickier in those ways, Daniel asked about money. A big part of the reason I'm mentioning it is because the applications just opened on Monday and will be continuing till May 15th if you or somebody you know is writing about mass incarceration. 
that's my plug. And I also just want to give a sense, sorry Eli, we're really taking over here. I want to give a sense of the scope. The Hamburg for Writers in Prison goes to 500 people approximately a month for free. That's how many people request it. And we, get, uh, we got last year, this year, I can't remember which one, you can correct me, over 1,300 submissions to the Prison Writing Award. So there are a lot of people who are requesting uh, these resources. Eli, why don't you tell us about what you do? Oh, sure. Um, so I work for the Marshall Project, um, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan news organization. And so we're, we're doing reporting on the criminal justice system. Um, but as part, of, uh, as part of that, we wanted to enlist the best possible reporters on what's going on inside prison, which would be incarcerated people and um, other people who live and work inside the criminal justice system um, to, to, to give their firsthand reporting um, as part of our l larger investigative reporting work. Um, and so what we do is every, every Friday we have um, a first person essay published. Um, it's called our Life Inside series. Um, they're almost entirely by um, incarcerated writers um, and reporters, but uh, we, we also have some that are by um, families of incarcerated, family members of incarcerated people, uh, defense attorneys, um, uh, e even sometimes police officers or other people who are uh, involved in the system giving their kind of uh, reported experience of, of what their life or work inside the system is like. Um, and so that's kind of our, our main purpose is to report on the system and shed light on a system that's often shrouded in secrecy. It's literally behind walls or on islands um, and, and to, 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 to enlist people to, we're, we're trying to bring information out. And so that's, that's kind of our purpose, um, which differs a little bit from like maybe what the purpose of somebody at a publishing house would be. Um, and, and just one more note on it is that um, what we're really focused on with the Life Inside essays is kind of um, direct personal experience. Um, we also have um, incarcerated people who do investigative reporting for us and, and or write op-eds for us. Um, like we have one writer in, in New York State who's, who's uh, published a couple of investigative pieces with us and with um, Esquire and uh, New York Magazine, and, and he's, he does really good um, long-form investigative work. But with the Life Inside series, we're focused on the kind of people talking or writing about what the experience of prison is like, different aspects of a prison life, um, the kinds of things that investigative reporters on the outside could never um, shed any light on through public records requests or through making a database of lawsuits or whatever us reporters would usually do. Um, Life Inside is uh, reporting on experience, the experience of prison um, in a way that no other reporter in, uh, in any other situation could, could hope to do. I think you just answered my first question, Eli. Thank you. Uh, cool. Just to shout him out, is that investigative reporter John J. Lennon? Yes, John J. Lennon, yes. yes worth looking up his work. The question I was going to ask was what are our aims and goals in uh, publishing work from writers in prison? And I think also what I'm getting at is this kind of rub between our education, well, I'm putting, framing it in our work, Eli, but then we can expand it, obviously. Looking at uh, our educational work, this idea of mentorship, which as Robbie mentioned, often goes 
back and forth. It's not just one way, mentor to mentee, as we categorize them typically, but really becomes an exchange. Um, and the rub between that kind of work of cultivating or supporting writers and the work of a book like this, where we get Piper Kerman and Jeffrey Tubin and Kise Lehman and Molly Crabapple and famous writers to be talking about how uh, exceptional the work is and that we really want to elevate or thinking about bringing uh, books like Cherry and the Gray Bar Hotel into the world that is existing on the same plane, very obviously, as other accomplished writers of our time. Um, what are our aims and goals and are they shifting and how do we, you kind of already answered the question so I'm trying to spin it a little bit with how do we sort of deal with that space in the middle? Yeah, so yeah, as I, two of our goals are just the reporting and getting at the experience of prison. Um, I, I think m one of the other things that's um, important for us is that I think there's actually kind of a, um, a cognitive dissonance that a lot of our readers report experiencing when they read Life Inside pieces, which is that I, I think a lot of readers in the general public um, uh, like aren't aware that there's such reporting to be done um, by people who have actually experienced things uh, firsthand. Um, and uh, there's also a cognitive dissonance of like, you know, these uh, like people are in prisons, so, so are they, like, it's, they must not be capable of, of being reporters of their own experience. Um, and I think every time we publish one of these essays, it, it kind of creates that cognitive dissonance, which I think can be really effective in changing how people are viewed or, uh, you know, who are incarcerated. I don't know, I, that just opened a real big can of worms in my brain that are totally tangential to the conversation, which is not always a good thing. Um, I, one of the things, a, a friend of mine, Lawrence Bartley, who is collaborating, had start, started this um, magazine, maybe you could talk it's a little bit News more about Inside, it. News Inside, uh, yeah, probably based on yeah. Life Inside. Well, not based, but yeah, that's another thing uh, mm -hmm. that I have no role in. It's Lawrence, it's totally his creation, but um, that's a new publication that the Marshall Project had that collects um, not just the Life Inside essays, but also a number of our reported pieces, investigative pieces, into a magazine that we're distributing um, in prisons for incarcerated readers to read so that um, it's not just that incarcerated writers are writing for the Marshall Project, but that we're also trying to make sure that they're our audience as well. Um, and, and so that's a new publication that Lawrence has gotten out to prisons in nearly 20 states already. Um, and yeah, I think it's a, a, a cool thing. Thank you for, for elaborating. So I, I hope I didn't cut off any of your uh, awesome questions there. Uh, but no, I think about uh, News Inside and I think about its role as informing it's, it has an inherent educational compor component. So like a copy of the New Yorker floating around on the cell block be, has an inherent educational component, or the Atlantic, or the New York Times. I had someone say, oh, the other day, he came to an event here at Housing Works, and af after it was over, um, and Rosie had waved everybody out, um, he was like, all we could get in my prison was the New York Post. So like, he was really upset that, that all he had access to was the New York Post. And I, I think of the value when we send um, the anthology back in is that one, 
and we spoke about it earlier, it connects people to a community, and I think education is underlying all of that. I, I can't see it as any other way. Like, so for me, education is always there, um, even if it's uh, education in connection and humanity and sharing what it is we share when we read each other's words and connect in that level. Beautiful. That brings me to actually really naturally the next point, which is uh, was also brought up by I, I think Kathy earlier, which is how do we access the work? As folks probably know in the room, there's no grand list of all the prisons in America, and here are their address, and here's where they're cataloged, and here you can send an email off. It takes deep and intensive research to even find out where the prisons all are in America. I can't even imagine a project like that. So I'm thinking about recruiting strategies. I, I'm also thinking about how, Eli, we share a lot of the same writers. We see Sterling Cuneo and George Wilkerson and John J. Lennon, the same names surface that when our awards are often publishing with the Marshall Project. Obviously, I knew Carol House and Fong Lee because they're supported by a program. They've won awards in our contest. So often, the big question for us is how do we actually access the work? How do we get work to people in prison? How do we get work? out of prison. And I think maybe everybody in the room is very familiar with how difficult that is, but let's talk for a little bit about um, the barriers and maybe also some strategies. Uh, well, just in terms of how we have tried to build out our base of writers and recruit people and that kind of thing, I mean, we started out by just that there's all these great um, prison writing programs just at the local level around the country. Um, you know, Minnesota was mentioned earlier, but you know, in most states, uh, there are multiple prison writing programs, and so we just made a huge effort to just contact like every prison writing programs, and also a lot of the, the college programs that operate in prisons, and just ask the teachers uh, to um, you know connect us with writers they thought could to, could do a really good life inside essay, and so a lot of um, our outreach has been through those programs, but then. Um, one of the challenges there is that, you know, there's a lot of parts of the country, especially in the south um, and in rural areas and also in jails um, as opposed to prisons where there might not be these kinds of resources, there might not be the like volunteer base that's coming in to do writing programs, um, there might not be a college nearby that's, that's doing something like this. So I think one of the challenges has been reaching more writers in jails which are more chaotic and have fewer programs. Um, reaching more writers uh, in a wider array of geographical uh, locations, uh, especially in the South. Um, and so, and another way that we've tried to reach out is by doing lots of calls for submissions in like prison legal news and other publications that go out to people in prison. Um, and, and then news inside, we're hoping the fact that we're sharing the work um, with readers in prison will then like d double back on itself in the form of people submitting their work, but it's it's an it's yeah it's it's difficult to keep expanding the writer base because there are these writers who are really good at getting their work in front of uh, you know editors, um, but we want to make sure that we uh, keep uh, expanding the group of people that we're hearing from because again our mission is to report on the system and. and see what things are like in prisons and jails and more places um, and, and get more experiences. So that, that's a challenge, just expanding it. That was pretty well summarized. I just want to note that uh, we expect uh, Lawrence to put a plug for Penn's programs in News Inside. Just 
Well, email us it to yeah. That, that, Robbie, maybe you can actually speak more to the, the logistics, the hard logistics, things coming through our desk, the kind of censorship we see of writers, things that Eli wrote about Arthur Longworth, a big article about that. Can you speak to some of the actual tangible things that we bump up against? I mean, the most drastic cases are people who are actually punished for writing. Um, there in um, Massachusetts, uh, we had uh, a writer who basically was doing reportage um, about very atrocious acts that were being allowed to happen by prison administration um, despite attempts by many people to stop it from happening and he was obviously punished confiscation of his materials, put it in segregation, um, general harassment which takes the form of like psychological abuse and, and so on and so forth. So that's on one extreme. On the other side, maybe the, the, the most light sort of uh, censorship is just your mail won't show up and you won't receive a notification. So a writer will be you know, sitting there waiting, hoping, or they'll send out the follow-up letters. Let me know if you got this. I numbered each of the pages one, two, five, and you should let me know if, uh, if we got that back. That's sort of like all these adaptive methods of communication, sending communication through a friend or to a family member. Um, and ways of verifying it back and forth. Um, but I, I guess those are all like real significant hurdles to getting your stuff out. And then there's getting your stuff back in where we're noticing around the country and Penn has started doing a study of prison book banning which kind of started as like, you know, a, a drop here and a drop there with the increasing presence of tablets and. Uh, uh, in prisons across the country, but it's kind of stirred, turned into a groundswell. And it's, it's sort of been a, a, a back and forth uh, game of super restrictions dropped on a prison population, public outcry, roll back slightly the restrictions, so like this washing of the tide that slowly erodes the right of prisoners to read. So that includes publishers like Longworth who can't get a copy of their own book um, in the mail or writers who uh, can't receive anything but from a specific source, or states like Washington who recently banned all used books coming in. Um, so there's, there's all those things in between. And for us, I feel like there's a sort of institutional knowledge with how we operate. Um, many prison writing programs, um, like Eli alluded to, which are our forerunners, they have a strict set of rules, and you know this because you facilitated in prison programs. So you could do a writing exercise with someone at you know at at the prison location where you are, and it's like really intense, and you're like, wow, this needs to be in the world, um, but you can't take it out without severe sanction. Maybe never facilitating in that state again. Um, but we, as Penn, the organization, and you, as Marshall Project, that because they're writing it and sending it out through the mail. We, we operate sort of in a, a different space, First Amendment protected space um, through lots of case law. So I think that's a really good space to defend a person's right to be able to report on their own life or write their story, create their vision, even if it uses a word like escape, you know, or, you know, any of the number thi of things that will flag it. You wanted something specific, but I'll... 
All right. Okay. I was, could I just add one more thing? Because yeah, all of those things are in terms of obstacles to uh, uh, writers getting their work out and uh, and um, us getting our feedback back to the writers and, and all that kind of thing are all very true for the work um, that the Marshall Project's doing too. But uh, like an additional challenge that I just thought of is just that we're trying to do this every Friday. Because <laughs> um, like we're, we're, we're like doing news. Um, and so snail mail, obviously the pace of getting things back and forth uh, by the mail when you're trying to do it on a weekly basis. Although we try to have like things lined up in advance, but um, we, we, since again, since we're a news organization, we, we do fact checking of, of everything and that can, uh, you know, it, it takes a long time because normally the fact checker would just contact the writer and ask a couple questions and, and oh, sorry. Um, and. You know, so fact checking, uh, revision, all these things. Trying to do these things through snail mail, um, or JPay, or Corelinks, if if those are available. But um, just doing it as a news organization is this extra time constrained element. Kudos to you all. I can't even imagine. And just to give a sense to an example that's rooted in our work, um, I and to underscore a couple of things that Kathy said. How do you, do you all get work to an agent? And the answer is, we don't have time. We're swamped with mail, right? I mean, once in a while, the truth is, I'll sneak something really good to another publication, or people will come to us and ask for advice. For example, the Washington Post comes and says, uh, can you review this for ethics and see if this call is, is appropriate for currently incarcerated writers? I said, oh, it looks great, but they can't email you a submission. You better put a snail mail address on it, and you better make your timeline for this issue much longer than you think. And she said, oh, I had no idea. And if you don't know the words JPay or Corelinks, these are email systems that are monitored by the facility. So they're not private. They're not quick just uh, back and forth, obviously, because they have to be looked at. And you can't go on the internet, so you can actually do a call for submissions, a submittable, et cetera, the way that uh, many writers operate. So um, often it takes also an advocate on the outside who's going to really be in your corner. You know, Anthony, you had stamps, you said even. Just access to stamps. Some people don't have money for stamps. Uh, one of our Writing for Justice fellows, I can email him on JPay, but he cannot email me back. Now we've been realizing that, uh-oh, we haven't received anything from him in months. So he works with his father, another advocate, uh, that's a friend who monitors an online publication that he runs from behind the walls and with his mentor through our program all just to get this work to us because the prison is caught on we think that he's a fellow and so they're interrupting the process um, so it, it, sometimes even we make it sound I think easier than it is oh you just find out and somehow you mail it in but just imagine for a moment no internet Imagine for a moment you're looking at a writer's digest that's maybe five years old now. Who the heck knows in this literary journal what even kind of work is published, right? And then how do you actually get your work out, the time, energy, effort, and then the wait for a response that may never come. I know that I am two months behind in responding to a stack of mail, and it is my job to do this work, right? Just to give a sense, in case folks in the audience aren't fully aware of, uh, of the kind of effort it takes really to get this work in the world. Um, I want to close on really thinking about, because I think we've answered a lot of these questions in here, and then maybe we could take a question or two if there even is one in the audience and invite some of our past speakers to answer. Um, what are some of the ethics when we particularly think about editing 
work that's coming out of prison. And I know we don't do a ton of editing in our work. We tend to publish pretty raw at this point. We're still figuring out what that might look like for the future. But Eli, I've been very curious in terms of your editing process for Life Inside series. What does that look like? And how do you think about it, given the time constraints, given that it's going back and forth with the mail? And by the way, if you're sending through JPay, they technically own the work, so a lot of people intelligently won't send through JPay. Uh, could you speak to that a little bit? Sure, yeah, it's, it's something that we've thought about a lot, um, but where we always end up coming down on the issue is that we're gonna edit the, the work of incarcerated journalists the same way that we edit our staff writers at the Marshall Project and the same way that we edit freelancers who submit a piece. Um, we, the, the revision process is often one of the most exciting parts. I mean, we go back and forth several times with like, here, this, this, is, this is great in these ways and here's something that I think we should expand on in the, in the essay. Um, can you tell us more about it? Oftentimes it's an elaboration, um, just, just more on this, more on this, less of this. Um, and we go back and forth several times uh, with revisions um, with, with each essay. Um, and so it's a real collaborative process. Um, I think where the ethical part would come in is if like we were getting it and just like editing, up, editing it ourselves and then like not sharing the edited version with the writer before we publish, which we always um, do, which we, al we, al we always share the final version with the writer before we publish it, um, which again is why we kind of have to make sure to do these things in advance since there is a time constraint. Um, yeah, but to me, it, it would be, um, I, I, we, we, we want the work to be as, as, as good as it can be and we want it to uh, be to meet the same standards that our staff writers are, are meeting and we want to work with the, the writers the same way we work with any other freelance writers um, and that that's our approach to it uh, I, I can't think of the process as being equitable so I'm sorry that just gets I get where you're coming from totally and I'm thinking I'm like when you ask somebody to do a revision and they don't have a thesaurus you know, or access to extensive research materials. So yeah, just bolster up that section on the thing that was thin because you literally pulled it from one reference to one article or something you watched on PBS for in a half hour show that you referenced. So it's like, it's really, it's really challenging. I run into this all the time with my mentors. Um, I have a mentor helping a, um, helping to edit a very large play written on Martin Luther King. Um, Junior, and so the, the the mentor is going back and forth with the mentee in this sort of editorial process. But not only does the mentor have to provide feedback, but they also <laughs> kind of have to go the extra step, which is more educational in nature, and provide the the research materials that would oh here's this book that you would need to read to. They have to think of the entire um, scope, which is sort of much much different from you have to think for as the writer, what would I need in order to produce that? And I'm sure most of your writers are well established and they, they kind of know, I know some of the writers <laughs> who write for, for Life Inside, so they do that. But I think, I think the challenge for me when I'm thinking about the editorial process, uh, because some of the works that our mentorship produces that I get to screen, uh, some of that work ends up going on to be submitted to other publications as a result of the process uh, between mentor and mentee. Uh, even our writing for justice, uh, I've watched 
people craft their writing for justice submissions and their magazine submissions through that. And I, and I see how much that process relies on thinking ahead um, based on the writer's constraints. I would just add one, one more thing about Life Inside, which is that all, all of these essays, as I was mentioning at the beginning, are about your direct, your own experience. Um, so I, I totally get what you're saying. And when it comes to like um, somebody doing an investigative report for us, you're right that the, the resources are totally not equitable, not equitable and, and um, it, 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 it's, it's, apples, it's apples and oranges to say like we, we treat all our reporters the same. But I was meaning specifically with uh, Life Inside, where they're talking about an experience that they had um, in prison and can you elaborate on that, that moment a little bit more and how did that, how did that part make you feel, um, that kind of thing, you know, drawing on their memory more, um, um, getting, you know, trying to draw out certain, so, so I, yeah, I, I definitely hear what you're saying, but with the life inside, it's, it's, it's less of the, yeah. And awesome. your investigative pieces are typically co-written, right, when, when one person's incarcerated for that reason, is that right? They're not always. I mean, we've had some where they're just they're just really well done, um, and there's nothing else that <laughs> needs to be uh, like, yeah. Um, but sometimes they're uh, co-written like uh, by one of our staff writers and um, an incarcerated writer for those some of those same reasons, like access to databases and 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 uh, you know. We can just call up lawsuits anytime, like, and just like look stuff up, and we can interview prison officials, which is kind of hard for somebody who's actually incarcerated themselves to do, um, um, at, at least without consequences. Um, and, and so, yeah, with sometimes they're they're co-written. Great, thank you. And before we close I, and open it up for maybe a question or two, this is actually a question for everybody who is on our stage. Sorry, you're in the audience. You might have to come up if you have a thought about this. Uh, but often we are also thinking, or let me just say, I'm often thinking about the way that we silo writers, incarcerated writers or writers in prison, often to this sort of non-existent genre called prison writing. And I got a little self-righteous in it until I visited some prisons where people had won our contest and they said, no, 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 it's really important that it's named the Prison Writing Awards because I saw that and knew that it was for me. Uh, so that helped me understand a little bit. But I still think that on the outside, part of our duty is to be imagining a world where somebody who's been in prison or is in prison can write, and they don't have to be tagged as a prison writer or an incarcerated writer or a formerly incarcerated writer. I don't know if that's actually possible in our current society. But I want to put the question out to the room uh, for our folks that were on stage or even for folks in the audience who might have ideas about how do we start to imagine how that can happen. Or can it? Maybe we just leave it. Yes. Do you want to cut? Can I ask you to just use a mic and stand with us? Would you be willing? Join us. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I, I'm in boxing. All right. I'm in sports. I do a little bit of uh, stuff in entertainment. Everything that you do in life is X. An X football player an ex-boxer, an ex-president of the United States. Ex is just part of the language. And if you are, I've been in jail just a short time, all right? Nothing bad, um, nothing bad, I was in jail. Um, but everything is ex, and, it's, and I know quite a few ex-cons, all right? And when I introduced them to people, at times I said, he's been in jail, he's an ex-con. 
all right? And I just don't think that's a word you're gonna be able to get rid of. Just everything in life with what you do, you're an ex this or an ex that, etc. That's all, you're an ex, and I'm using this because of athlete. You're an ex actor, you're an ex bartender. What about negative things, though? All of those are positive but, but, but orientations. I, you know, my, my thing is, simply because we don't know each other, being in, uh, being in jail, to me, is not a big yeah, Being in jail. Might as well turn I'm around a, and share, share your beautiful. Hello, people. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Being in jail, and by the way, Anthony is the one that invited me here, and I'm thrilled you did. This is just fascinating to me, all right? And uh, I mean, I'm just saying that uh, in our world here in this country, everything, you know, not everything, but if you're an athlete and retired, you're an ex-football player, you're an ex-boxer, you're an ex-politician, you're an ex-mayor, you're an ex-con. And that's just the way, that's I hear, just I, the way I, I, I I'm not, I'm I don't want I, I, No, 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 I, I, no way am I saying it's correct. I'm just saying this is what people do and it's gonna be pretty damn tough to get ex-con out of someone's language. Thank you, thank you for sharing that. That's like, that's a brave statement to a lot of people, especially in the progressive side who are very conscious of language and understand the power of language to humanize or dehumanize someone. So I think I, th I run into this all the time and we debate about this constantly. So it's like really exciting to think about how challenged we, you know, how we could put our gloves on about language. That um, also seems too like a, re a lived reality that we're in, which is also my question, can we move towards something? How do we envision something different when that is the reality of most of our society and how folks see it? How do we actually disrupt that? And thinking about, of course, writers in prison we work with all the time or uh, who say, my God, can I ever just be a writer? Do I have to always be in the mass incarceration issue? And how do I get there and what does that look like? So I think some of it's also how do we vision the future out of what currently is and what we're steeped in? Yeah, I think... I th it's not an easy yeah, one to answer. Personally, I, don't, I, don't, I think a lot of people own the stigmas associated with their history. It's really hard, right? And like you said, it's different saying I am an ex-Marine um, and like Nico Walker, I, I'm an ex-Army uh, medic. That sounds good, right? I'm an ex-bank robber, mm, not so much. No, can you babysit my kids? Yeah, maybe not, you know? Um, so there's, there's challenges in, in that, like you were saying. But there's also this amazing bravery that I think I really want to acknowledge. I didn't have the bravery. I'm not published. I don't have work out in the world because I'm personally afraid of what it means to be like, oh, you're an ex-whatever. Um, so. I admire anyone who's like, look, I'm a writer. Our, our panelists who came up here and were so gracious and our hosts um, uh, were, were like, look, they published and they're willing to take on that mantle. That's a step that a lot of writers don't have to face. You know, they may have been, you know, scumbags or like not cool people, but they don't have to wear their worst moment on the jacket cover of their book, you know? Unless Barbara Walters is in interviewing or Oprah. Um, yes. Come up and grab the mic. Uh, oh, no, I, Can you yell? I, I, I just want to say I think we just need to continue to have good people in high positions and good
actually want to ask um, Eli a, a, a question. Um, some actually just occurred to me, and I, I, um, sorry, Anthony, I, I got you. Um, that's something that I hear a lot. People are like, the Marshall Project's amazing, but the bios always say what the crime is. Can you speak a little bit to that choice on the Marshall Project's behalf? I've heard Bill speak about it, but I don't, I, I'll let you talk about it as the Marshall Project writer. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's something that, uh, it's been an ongoing debate within the Marshall Project. Um, I, I honestly, I pr probably shouldn't say this, but I, I can't say that I necessarily agree with that, um, that choice. Um, but it, it, it does, essentially, I, I don't know, for, the, for those of you who aren't familiar, um, when somebody's uh, written for us, um, it'll have a bio and it'll say uh, where they're located and their, what their crime of conviction is. Um, and I think the, the logic that's gone into it is that um, uh, it's like, Honestly, I, I, I don't even remember what the, what the reasoning is, but it's like, um, it, it, it's kind of, this is, what, this is why this person is incarcerated. Um, this is the thing that they're there for, and it's kind of in our journalistic ethic to share information um, about somebody and, and that readers are um, interested in and want to know. Um, Does it have to do with victims at all as well? I feel like I heard that somewhere, but I may be incorrect. Yeah, I, I think that's been articulated before that it's um, uh, that it would be a disservice to crime victims to um, to give all of the space uh, that we do to um, incarcerated writers um, at, without in any place acknowledging that some of some of the, those writers have taken lives or have uh, you know whatever it may be, um, and that's kind of one of the aspects of it too, but I can just tell you, I mean, again, it's been a subject of, of significant internal debate and, and um, yeah, it's, 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 I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I would actually be interested in hearing Let me jump what in you guys think. What a plus has someone who's incarcerated come out and complain to us. That to me is a plus, plus, plus. So for those who didn't hear, he's saying he thinks it's a big plus uh, that someone who's incarcerated to come out and be writing books. And that's, that's the other aspect. I want to get um, Anthony's take on all this so far. Yeah, and I, just want to, I just wanted to add to that um, what the young lady was speaking about is the laws would have to be amended in order for that to happen, meaning that legislators would have to amend the statutes that they already have in place, meaning that, okay, in North Carolina, restore of citizenship is North Carolina General Statute 13-1, but that never happens. You, when you get out of prison, you're supposed to get your citizenship back, but you don't get that because you're still treated like an alien. You can't get a job, you can't you know, sign up for you know, apartment, you know, all of these type of things. So the law would have to actually be amended in order for it not to be an X, in order for you to truly get your citizenship back.
That's right. I agree with you 100%. That's a wonderful. Aren't you she had a microphone? I know, oh, I do. Yeah. I, uh, uh, optimist to a fault. Thank you. That's a great, actually, note to close. I want to thank everybody in this room for showing up for this conversation. Definitely thank you to Mitch, Kathy, Tim, Daniel, Randall, Anthony, Eli, my colleague Robbie, Rosie and Housing Works Bookstore Cafe. I encourage you to. Check out some of the books, no pressure, but we have our anthology, pick up a card, chat with folks, and please, if you'd like to stay in touch with us, um, email us to get on our seasonal mailing list at prisonwriting at pen.org. We have some really amazing events coming up in the World Voices Festival in May, and we'd love to see you there. Have a great night, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Just occurred to me.